0: One of the best known contemporary books on the practice of the Buddhist teaching is the um called The Heart Mindfulness, the Heart of Buddhist Meditation by Venavanaponika. And um it's quite a thick book and uh it concerns this sutta. So now after we have been talking about it for quite a number of days, you can realize how much there is in this one sutta, that um, it takes quite a long time to even just discuss it, never mind practice it. It takes even longer. We've got as far as the content of mind in contradistinction to mind states. And um, as you watch your own mind, you will realize what the difference is. You can also um, explain a mind state as a mood in the mind. Whereas the uh, content of the mind is a quite a distinctive a chatter sometimes, a very distinctive thinking process. And we are, that's the one we're discussing now, Dhamma Nupasana, the content of mind. We got as far as the hindrances and discussed the very first one, sensual desire. We can also call it greed, we can call it lust, we can call it wanting, desiring, craving, whatever we please, it all comes down to the same thing. Obviously, it arises because we are not totally satisfied. And in this context, it may be useful to make reference to the meditative process as it um, develops when the mind becomes more concentrated. Now, our essential desires are multitudinous of all kinds and all, in all directions. And the reason we keep on desiring is because we have the underlying conviction that should we ever get what we really want, although we might even know what we really want, we would be perfectly happy. And so we keep on looking. Looking here, looking there, and very often blaming the object of our desire for not fulfilling the desire, which is, of course, totally absurd because there is no object or subject that could possibly fulfill our desire of total happiness and peacefulness. In the context of our meditation, we come to the experience of the jhanas, the meditative absorptions, and as we experience them more often and possibly a little stronger than just at the beginning, we have a very significant and very important insight namely that we can dispense with the desires for worldly things because they have not lived up to our expectations anyway. That doesn't mean that we no longer will enjoy a sunset, and it doesn't mean that we cannot look at a wildflower and think it's pretty or even taste something and think that's nice. What it means is that we will no longer search because we know it can't be found out there in the world. And because we desist from that search, we release a lot of time and a lot of energy for the spiritual path. The energy and the time, which in everybody's life, is limited and which we can now release for that because we're not um, spending it on trying to gratify sensual desires. Some of that gratification, as I said, will arise anyway, and it's perfectly fine to experience that. The... Um, In the meditative absorptions, the um, result of our depth of absorption is an inner condition. The inner condition, which brings this about the cause, sorry, not the result, the cause is the inner condition. So we have now, when we get to the meditative absorption, been able to switch from the outer condition to the inner condition we've certainly not got nearly unconditioned. The unconditioned, which is Nibbana, another word for Nibbana, total liberation, freedom, has nothing to do with any of this, but all of it is on the path towards it. It does not denote Nibbana, but it's certainly the pathway to it. So we have the inner condition which makes it possible to let go of so many of our desires and wishes for gratification however the most deeply ingrained one and the one which is a cause for our existence is a craving to be and which on the other side has the craving not to be which are both um, due to the same mis Understanding of our selfhood because we can only be if there is somebody there to be. So, this craving to be is the most deeply ingrained one, but it has as its immediate counterpart the desire for the gratification of sensual desire, the craving for that. So, these are the three cravings that we are beset with, according to the Buddha's teaching, the craving to be, a craving not to be, and the craving for sensual pleasures. Now, the, as I said, through our meditative absorptions, the craving for the sensual pleasures certainly becomes much less. It doesn't get illuminated, but it becomes much less the craving to be gets a bit of a knock because we can only become deeply absorbed if we let go at one stage along the line there of this deeply ingrained desire to have ego affirmation. (coughs) In the first three absorptions, we certainly have an observer, but we can only go into the fourth one if we have at least minimized this craving to be. Therefore, the uh, meditative absorptions are not only what they certainly are, pleasurable and joyful, and uh, harmonizing in what's in our life. But at the same time, they bring us nearer to an absolute reality. And they bring us nearer to that reality almost automatically. Whereas without them, we'd have to strive pretty hard. No, very hard. Not that we don't have to strive to become concentrated, but that is the name of the game, isn't it? Trying to be concentrated. So the sensual pleasure, the for sensual pleasure, which was the first of the hindrances, is then followed by ill will as a second one. You can call ill will anything you like. You can call it anger hatred, resistance, rejection, fear goes under the same heading because we can only fear what we don't like we don't fear what we love and um fear and anxiety so it is a um very um expansive uh, topic this It has many um other Mental states in uh, within now, in our daily practice, we have to of course reinforce our meditative practice first of all, this second hindrance is counteracted by the third factor of the meditative absorption in pali p t p i t i in uh, English rapture. Bliss, delight. Possibly delight is the best word. Because the other two sound too exalted. I would say delight is a good word, which is caused by a physical sensation. And that is the the counteraction for ill will. Naturally, during the meditation, that's obvious. However, it carries forward into daily life. If we are able to go back into that meditative state at will, and only then does it become a truly meditative state when we can go there when we want to, our dislikes and resistances and rejections in daily life no longer seem to be so important. They no longer carry such a sting with them because the mind knows it can go back to having delight when it wishes. And it isn't dependent upon the um, pleasantness that very often does not arise from other people and in the world. So our own ill will is strongly counteracted through that aspect of the first meditative absorption, which is actually, as I usually call it, the entry hall, the first step, which shows us that, uh aha, we're getting concentrated. Ill-will is a very strong characteristic of all beings. They're mostly concerned with human beings. And it needs reinforcement. The counteraction needs reinforcement in our daily living. The uh, prescribed reinforcement by the Buddha is loving-kindness meditation and loving-kindness actions. So it's not just enough to sit there and meditate and meditate and meditate and love the whole world. We have to actually do something about it. And loving the whole world is a little difficult to do something with because we don't have that kind of far-reaching effect to show our love to the whole world. But in mental states, it's much easier to love the whole world than it is to love the people you live with. Because the whole world is abstract and does not um, say things and do things which we don't like. So we must never get carried away by the idea that because we do loving-kindness meditation and actually try to love everybody everywhere, that we're actually doing it. The the, uh, proof of the pudding is in the fact that we love the people that we're together with and whose difficulties and whose feelings we know. When we know people's feelings and love them, that can be called love. So in our daily living, we have, all of us, many opportunities to actualize the... um, thought processes and the feeling processes which we generate in the loving-kindness meditation. The loving-kindness meditation is designed for directing the mind in that direction and then we need to um, follow through on that. We need to follow through on that in a manner and form that we are capable of. um, The warmth that we may generate in the heart through the meditative process is something that is very much in evidence when we can be with other people and um, show that to them. It's uh, far more important to have that rather than to go about telling people, you know, I love you, or I love everybody. Um, that doesn't sound very convincing usually, but the action Of the love is an actual action in the heart which uh, people can um, very often become aware of. One of the manifestations of the thought process of the loving-kindness meditation is one's willingness to be there for others, to give oneself, one's time, one's abilities, one's energy, and so forth, because all that are loving actions. All of that is in our daily possibilities to counteract the ingrained ill will that we have. It is said that people who have more ill will, more hate than greed, are those who will practice much better because they don't feel very well. It feels pretty awful to have hate inside, and they're determined to do something about it. Whereas those of uh, people who have more greed than hate feel pretty good, because very often they can actually satisfy those states of um, greed and desire, even though it's only momentarily, and um, they are, although they're easier to live with, they, as I said, that they don't practice as well. They're much easier to be sidetracked from the practice and uh, far easier indulge themselves in um, taking it easy, where it's a person with, that has more hate uh, is a person who will be very diligent and determined. Now, these are generalizations, which, uh, of course, has all sorts of um, differences in different people. It's just an explanation of seeing uh, what the um, results of greed and hate very often are. The Buddha compared hate with a bilious disease, ill will, the bile coming up, feels terrible. If one is really hateful and really dislikes somebody very much, um, one doesn't feel very good. It's an unpleasant feeling within. He compared the water pond with one where there was a lot of wind and the waves of the water went very high, so one couldn't see one's likeness. Anger feels very uh, uh, it's a strong movement in the emotion. And his uh, um, remedy is uh, the loving-kindness meditation and loving-kindness action. Now, these are, loving-kindness action particularly, is um, a deliberate thing that we can do even at times when we don't feel like it. Just as we can meditate at times when we don't feel like it and may have quite good results. It's the same with the loving-kindness. If we have no feeling of lovingness towards someone, and yet we know very well that this is what needs to be done, it's very helpful to try and practice it as best as one can. Naturally, it's not going to be wonderful. It's not going to be perfect. (coughs) Hopefully, it does not. Deteriorate into hypocrisy. Um, it is a matter of trying to change one's heart from the negative to the positive. Deliberate action, whereas in the meditative process of the jhana, which is a Pali word for meditative absorptions, and because it's so much shorter, I would now like to use it. it only has two syllables. Um, In the Janus, we have automatic purification. What more could anybody want? One feels, at least I do, sorry, that it isn't generally practiced more because of the fact that it has such excellent results. Naturally, it is not an uprooting. I'd like to repeat that. I have said that before, but I'd like to repeat it. It is not an uprooting. It's a cutting down of the hindrances. And as we cut them down, they are less and less obstructive, obviously. Our own inner well-being, because of this delightful state in the uh, jhanas, is something that makes a lot of difference, makes a whole difference between the ordinary way that we live and a way which has a promise of utter peace. Not that we have, because of the first absorption already achieved, complete and utter peace, nothing like it. But the promise is there. We can see a little light at the end of the tunnel. There is something else. It isn't just the world. There's an inner, inner experience which shows us that we are not strictly corporality or thinking. We have something else within whatever name we like to give that doesn't matter. The main thing is to experience it. These are our two um strongest hindrances, often mentioned as hate and greed um, which together with the delusion which was mentioned earlier are the three roots of evil, which have as their counterpart the three roots of good. And hate, obviously, has as its counterpart love, and greed has its as counterpart generosity, and delusion has wisdom. So we are now uh, covered these two. The reason they are mentioned in detail here is that if we remember all five of them, we can use that as an demarcation of the content of mind. And very, very often, if not always, we can find that one of the five will actually fit one of the negative states that do come up. The third one is lethargy and drowsiness. The uh, drowsiness is in the mind and the lethargy then comes in the body. We have two kinds of that. We have the one in meditation and we have the one in daily life. If there's drowsiness in meditation, the whole meditation process will no longer work. And it can sometimes, although not often, be mistaken for some sort of uh, concentration, because when we're drowsy enough, we can't think. And if we are not that drowsy that we're falling asleep, we might be mistaken to think we're concentrated. It's very easy to check up whether we have had drowsiness, which prevented us from thinking, or whether we had concentration which prevented us from thinking. The check is this, after the meditation is over, if we feel, extremely energetic, the mind feels light and we are ready to even physically do some action, we've been concentrated. If we feel like going to bed, we've been drowsy and been hypnotizing ourselves. So the the check is uh, quite clear at the end of the meditation. If we want to go to bed, nothing has happened. If we're ready to jump up and down and tear the house apart and build it up new, we've been concentrated. Hmm? The uh, lethargy and drowsiness is compared by the Buddha with being in prison. When we're in prison, there's nothing much we can do, and uh, we'll have to wait till the door is unlocked. The same is here, when the mind is in a state of fog, sleepiness, disinterest, lack of energy, there's nothing we can do. We have to wait till it passes. um, In, of course, when the concentration has arisen, then that sort of thing cannot happen. The uh, the counteraction for the uh, factors of meditation is the very first one, which is the initial application, which means sitting down and trying to get concentrated, which is the remedy for lethargy and drowsiness. In other words, what I just said, even if one doesn't feel like just to sit down and do it. Now if the mind refuses and stays drowsy again and again to refer back to the meditation subject. So whether we get into meditative absorptions or not has no bearing on this particular hindrance because the actual fact of sitting down and trying to get concentrated counteracts this uh, particular difficulty. And if it reoccurs, one has to start over again. The initial application. The initial application in meditation is often compared to hitting the gong, the actual first moment of hit. The uh, continued application, sustained application, is compared to the sound which follows. That's the same application, staying on it. Now, what hmm? Are the
1: Pali for what? To initial
0: and to want To Do you want to have the Pali words for all five factors? Vitaka and Vit First one is Vitaka. And the second one is Vichara. And the third one is Piti. So the very first initial application counteracts this for the meditative state. Now, of course, we also have to continue this in daily life, not to procrastinate, to do it now, to realize that we don't have any other moment except this one. This realization of having only this moment is not to arouse stress and strain and um, uh, worry and um, uh, anxiety. It's nothing except the uh, understanding that past and future are just concepts. The only reality is now. And if we use mindfulness to be in the here and now, there is no um, feeling of being pushed to do something. One just is in this moment. So in daily life, we need to also um, use this mindfulness on the moment so that we don't get into this prison of lethargy and drowsiness. The would have compared the water pond with one that is uh, completely muddy, like the mind feeling a bit muddy. Quite a good uh, symbol for that. And in meditation, if there is drowsiness in meditation, he gave several Um, remedies for that one is to open the eyes immediately and look at the light if one becomes aware of drowsling it, if it isn't too late already Um, to move the body, to get the blood circulation a bit uh, going to give oneself a pep talk only now, not at another time, this is the best moment, everything is laid on for me I don't have to do anything except meditate, why don't I do it? Or anything, anything that will be uh, helpful in the way of talking to oneself. And even standing up, if necessary. And if it is a situation where one can do it, instead of doing the uh, sitting meditation, doing walking meditation, and primarily not trying to do Samatha, calm meditation. But at such a time when the mind is trying to get away from one, do inside meditation. Because that can arouse interest again. See, the trouble with calm meditation is when one hasn't practiced very much yet, is the fact that the moment before falling asleep is exactly alike to the moment before becoming concentrated. Because one can only fall asleep when one stops thinking. There's no other way to fall asleep. You can't fall asleep thinking. You've got to stop thinking and then falling asleep. Same as with concentration. You've got to stop thinking to become concentrated. So a mind which hasn't practiced very long yet, for a long time yet, may think, aha, no thinking, fall asleep now. It's the right time for sleeping. So one has to be very um, alert to that. So if the mind is already drowsy a bit and, you know, has a bit of difficulty that way, in inside meditation that will not happen. Inside meditation there's a subject. There may be the subject of the elements. There may be the subject of impermanence. There may be the subject of um, um, the uh, parts of the body. There may be a subject of mind states, whatever it is. All of these are insight inside, uh, factors which we can use. And it is less likely to fall asleep. Then. So when there is such an, a difficulty in the meditative state, use insight meditation. Any one of the different ones we have already discussed. In daily life, it's a matter of remembering. Now, you see, we do know a lot of things, and much of the Buddha's teaching, the mind can say, well, yes, of course, naturally. That's nothing new. I've always known that. Quite so. But have I always done it? Probably never. And it's the same after we hear it again or read it again. We're quite in accord with it. We agree to it. It's all right. It's fine. But do we actually do it? It's not easy to remember. The mind has a faculty of cutting out those things which are not comfortable, easy, uh, pleasurable. So maybe it's more pleasurable to lie down and do nothing than it is to get up and do what is needed. Because we have forgotten that we have actually only this particular moment and that the drowsiness of the mind isn't going to help us. So in daily living it is always a matter of trying to re-remember the Buddha's words and see how they apply to the momentary state, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't take a rest. It has nothing to do with that. Naturally, uh, the body has to rest, and as the body has to rest, the mind will also have only the dream state to fall back on. But it is a matter of where we often see people who have very little to do, very few duties and responsibilities can't get anything done. And those who've got a lot to do always take on one more thing and get it done. It's not because there's more than 24 hours uh, in, the, in their day, it's just because the mind keeps alert. It. it also doesn't mean that we should be overly busy. It should mean that We use our time fruitfully. We don't have so much of it. And the older one gets, the less there's left. So to use the time fruitfully, that's all it means, in daily life and in the meditation. The fourth one of the hindrances is the agitation and worry. Restlessness and worry is often used instead sort of agitation, but they both mean the same thing. Now, restlessness is a very peculiar hindrance. It only goes with Arahant, with total enlightenment. Even the non-returner, the third stage of enlightenment, still has restlessness in a very minor way naturally. But restlessness is a typical sign of wanting something, if it's strong, strong restlessness, wanting something very badly, or wanting to get rid of something very badly. And naturally, when that arises in the mind, meditation is uh, hopeless, and the mind is completely restless, there's no way that it can the meditation can flourish. This is one of the uh, unfortunate parts of meditation. We'd like to become very nice and peaceful and calm, but in order to become nice, peaceful, and calm, we already have to be a bit peaceful and calm in order to even get to the concentration. So if there's a lot of restlessness in the mind, one of the things that one can do is try to repeat to oneself anything that one remembers about the Buddha's teaching. This is a very effective way when the meditation is not happening because of restlessness. Restlessness means that one wants something else. One doesn't want what one has, but one wants something else. And restlessness is very often connected to the past to something that has happened in the past, which one is um, um, not agreeing to, something that one has either done or omitted to do, or that others have done or omitted to do. It's, um, again, when we notice it in ourselves, we can say, all right, finished. past is gone. It may still have an effect on somebody's karma, but it's done, it's finished. And worry is practically always about the future. What am I going to do with myself? How is my life going to work out? Am I going to be able to do all the things that, I have intent- that I'm have i intending to do? Am I going to be able to make good? All based on the ego delusion. Who is going to do what? And also the fact that the future does not really exist. It's a concept. I always say, and I'm sure you've heard me say this before, tomorrow doesn't exist. When it comes, it's called today. There is no such thing as tomorrow. It's only a concept. It's useful for making appointments, for arriving at the dentist at the right time. It's useful for catching planes, but it's useless in our spiritual life. It just does not have any reality to it. How do we know what we're going to do tomorrow? We think what we're going to do tomorrow, but the one who is thinking today what he or she is going to do tomorrow is not the same person that's going to do it. We can never be the same person two moments in a row. So it has a utilitarian uh, usefulness, the uh, division of yesterday, today, and tomorrow, but it doesn't have any spiritual significance. On the contrary, it's counterproductive. And worry is always about the future. You see now, if you sit down and try to meditate, and you're worrying about the fact whether you're going to be concentrated. Are you ever going to be concentrated? totally impossible, isn't it? No way. So, all one can do is do it now and be done with it. And the um, restlessness is something which is very strongly ingrained. Both, of course, all of these hindrances are based on the ego concept, that's clear. But restlessness in particular and worry are very much egocentric. They have a great ego ego concept in it. Not that desire and hate don't have that in them, but we very often put desire and hate outward. We want an object or a subject, or we hate an object or a subject, whereas restlessness and worry just have no nothing outside of ourselves they are completely in on the in the center of ourselves so restlessness can be observed as a mind state and one of the effective things to do is to try and remember the maybe one of the chants, the Dhamma of the Blessed One is perfectly expounded to be seen here and now, here and now, not a matter of time. Now, if you've chanted it often enough, you'll know it by heart. I mean, it takes a matter of six or seven times and you'll know it by heart. To be seen here and now, not a matter of time. There's only an example, anything you remember, which has any connotation of doing it now and not thinking about the past, which makes restlessness arise. Also, desire makes restlessness arise. And very often, restlessness and worry arise because of lack of direction. There's no direction in life, one doesn't know exactly what to do with oneself. Those two are, have an open field. So one needs to maybe check up on one's priorities. That's in one's daily life. The um, the Buddha compared them to being a slave. One has no jurisdiction over one's mind states. One is a slave to them. Now, nobody likes to be a slave. One is totally unfree, of course. And the uh, antidotes which he described was learning more about the Dhamma and being together with wise and mature people. The one antidote which applies to all five hindrances, is noble friends and noble conversation. Noble friends are very often, as a terminology, meant to be those who are on a spiritual path (coughs) and preferably have gone ahead already a few steps so that they can be of assistance. And noble conversation naturally concerns itself with um, (coughs) some universal truths which are uplifting and helpful <coughs> here with restlessness and worry the buddha mentions wise and mature people separately again from noble friends and noble conversations So you can see how important the Buddha considers the fact of one's associations. They are mentioned at other times also in other discourses by the Buddha. In the Great Blessings discourse, he mentions also that one should always um, uh, associate with wise people. the mind is restless or worried in the meditative state, it is a matter of becoming aware of one's mind states and trying to learn to substitute. Now again, I'd like to mention once more that the actual um, understanding of Thinking, thinking, thinking is not sufficient and never once mentioned in any of these instructions. This whole sutta uh, is on instructions, on calm and inside meditation. Not once does the Buddha mention the fact that one should just note that one is thinking. I like to make that um, very um, uh, emphatic point because it's often... Um, mentioned that that is what one should do. If you can remember the things we have uh, read here, this is not once mentioned. It's either the mind state, which you could call a mood, what it is, or it is a content of mind. Now here, in the meditative state, we may come to the content of restlessness or worry, or any of these others that we have talked about. and as we see that and label it, we may not be successful to substitute the breath right then and there. We may have to substitute a positive mind state first. Now, a positive mind state which would be opposed to worry would be accepted. Not to worry about something, but to accept it, just the way it is. And an opposing mind state to being restless would be to drop the wishing for whatever it is that one wants to get. Now that takes a bit of insight into one's mind state, which would be that particular mindfulness. Very helpful in the meditation, very helpful in daily living. Is this quite clear? Are there any questions? Before I get to the last one. Yes?
2: I've got a question about association.
0: With people.
2: Yes. Um, you know, for the part of players, I mean, okay, you may know that these certain people aren't helpful to be with, but that it's important to... Be loving, kind, you know, loving and kind towards them mm-hmm. when they come into your life. Mm-hmm. But then that can often you people the wrong impression So they that, or um, mm-hmm. you find that you're sort of you can be sucked into something that you you rather wouldn't be. Mm-hmm. So, what's the right way to say that kind of thing?
0: Well, one has to be absolutely sure of one's own priorities. What are one's priorities? Is it the life in the Dhamma? Is it practicing? Or is it going about and trying to be kind to people? What is the utmost and utter priority? And if one has that quite clear in mind, it is not difficult to follow through. That doesn't mean that if one has as one's priority the practice of the Dhamma that one is becoming unkind to people. But it does mean that one spends less time with people who have no interest in what oneself is doing. While one is with them, sometimes one is forced to be with them for reasons of uh, family or duty or whatever it may be, naturally one tries to as much uh, love and compassion as one possibly can but the time element is one that would have to be investigated very strongly. It is also a fact that because we are not enlightened we are easily swayed by others and if we are together with people who think that meditation uh, is a useless uh, endeavor that it means that one wants to spend one's time doing nothing or worse, that uh, one can and that they are very happy with the things they are doing and they want want to uh, also take part in that, that one may actually um, be influenced by that. So one has to watch these influences. It's not that one now believes meditation is so good, but one now doesn't do it because nobody else is doing it. And one goes with them to whatever they're doing. So one has to use a a bit of um, discrimination how to spend one's time. And also one one does find, I think, that birds of a feather flock together is quite a valid um, proverb that one does feel drawn to people who do the same things. That's why people try to live in spiritual communities, and then of course get disappointed that everybody squabbles just as much as in the world. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. But that's only because they're not enlightened, in you know. <laughs> yeah, Thank you,
2: that, that's really helpful. I just have one other question about, you know, you mentioned earlier about, um loving-kindness um, can generate into hypocrisy and I'm just wondering again, you know, with difficult people, what is the wisest practice? You know, if you feel like, um, I mean, I can quite easily take the personal out and relate to a difficult person without that, but then I sort of feel I can be giving them the wrong
0: impression. Sorry, I don't think I'm understanding what you're saying. You can take what out? The
2: personal, you know, like my personal resistance to that person. Yes. I can easily sort of pluck out and be, feel genuine loving kindness towards
0: them. No, you can't. When you take the personal out, you can't be genuine loving kindness. (laughs) (laughs) You can be polite, friendly... Um, um, attentive, uh, listening, um, uh, equanimous, but you can't be loving. That's a personal um, reaction from the heart. That's got to have the heart element in it. And you see, when you don't like somebody, which everybody has that opportunity not to like somebody, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, we're given that opportunity all the time. Um, and then you realize, yes, but the Buddha said, you know, I've got to love everybody, so what am I going to do now? Um, you feel that dislike, and the first step is to realize that the dukkha I know about myself is in everybody whether that other person knows it or not has no bearing on the matter. Everybody has Dukkha. Existence means Dukkha. So the first thing is compassion, that they also have to go through this decay and death. Mm-hmm. That is so universal and so um, true, it doesn't uh, need any particular, um, you know, special insight or anything. And when a little bit of that compassion arises, the dislike goes. And then as that, or it might not go forever, but it at least, um, you know, sort of um, dissolves at that time. It doesn't strong anymore. And then from that, one can have a personal feeling of at least being... um, easy with that person, feeling harmonious with that person, even though there's not great love yet, that is not uh, immediate. But to take the personal out completely would mean, if it would be effective, would mean to take totally out any dislike and be able to substitute with love. But it's got to be personal. Because if it's impersonal, that's that's if it is without person, not in person, if it's without person, well, that's an arahant. He hasn't got any problems like that, he or she. Or it never has dislike arise. Unpleasant feelings, yes, but no dislike. So it's not um, useful to take the person out. It's OK. so well, if, you
2: know, if you can be skillful then, in relating to a person that you personally have difficulty with, what I'm concerned about is giving that person the wrong impression. You know, because like that's what I've tried to do with a certain person, and I and and I've been taken advantage of um, because I have been like that, or or maybe it's for other reasons, I don't know but so maybe, so what I'm trying to find out is through trying to be skillful have I given the wrong impression have I been hypocritical
0: possibly possibly possibly, if the skillfulness is um, strictly concerned with saying the right thing at the right time and giving the right kind of impression then it is hypocritical if there's no feeling behind it. If it's feeling behind it, it's not hypocritical. Mm. It's got to have feeling behind it. If the feeling is there, there's no hypocrisy. And uh, if the other person then is under under, under the impression that one is very loving and kind to, uh, to him or her, well, that's all right. There's nothing wrong with that. It's got to have the feeling behind it. The feeling is the crux of the matter. That's where it stands and falls with the feeling. your skillfulness applies to words. We can use skillfulness in words. We can say something skillful or unskillful. But it's still the feeling which matters. And this is something that this mindfulness does become more and more apparent.
2: But if there is negative feeling behind
0: it, then it can still be hypocritical. It is, yes, certainly. If there's negative feeling, even if there's no feeling behind it, it's hypocritical, Mm -hmm. right? If there's a good feeling behind it and skillfulness of words, then everything's fine, no problem. Mm -hmm. But if it's... uh, it's, The feeling is the folks what's the matter. That's what it hinges on. I
2: still don't feel I've communicated to you what I'm trying to communicate. I'll have one more go and leave it. <laughs> um, well, say I had been cool to this person rather than trying to work with them, mm. you know, in a, a kind of way as I possibly could. Well, then I feel um, that I would have communicated um, my difficulties with them perhaps, and I wouldn't then have been taken
0: advantage of subsequently. What's this business about being taken advantage of? Well, how does somebody else take advantage of one? One allows this, otherwise it's impossible. Even though one allows it without being aware of it. I mean, nobody can take advantage of one if one doesn't allow it to happen. So it's uh, it could be that one isn't aware of what's happening, sure. But as soon as one is aware of it, one would put a stop to that. Yeah. And uh, a coolness, communicating coolness to another person, I don't see any great. Uh, uh, Value in that. Why should that be necessary? I mean, if I want to communicate to somebody that I don't agree with them, I tell them so.
1: Mm.
0: I mean, how would they know what I mean if I don't tell them? They've got a hard enough time knowing what I mean when I do tell them. (laughs) (laughs) So if there's a disagreement, um, that doesn't prevent um, lovingness. Disagreements don't prevent lovingness and most people it does but it's not necessary at all. Most people think that when they disagree with each other that they can't love each other. This is a totally wrong uh, understanding. Um, so I think communication as clear as possible uh, with words about such matters and then the communication from the heart. You see now the thing is, the whole crux of the matter is, the more loving one's heart is, the easier it is to communicate love. So the whole uh, practice is, is to uh, to purify the heart to where it doesn't have any uh, great difficulty, even with people who are not so wonderful. And when one has finally come to the conclusion that oneself isn't so wonderful either, then also that also becomes a little easier. Mm-hmm. so what's so wonderful, you know, this whole of existence, you know. I mean, people do do crazy things, uh, granted, I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, they all have to do is read the newspapers. But um, it doesn't detract from our practice of trying to have a heart which is um, positive rather than negative,
2: you know.
0: And as I was saying, in the practice itself, that even when we don't feel like it, to try and practice it means with feeling, with the feeling of the loveliness. not with the gestures, but with the feeling. That's where it all amounts to. Right? Okay, yes. Uh, In practicing this counteraction through
2: the mood, With mm-hmm. um, me, it seems that once I try to make the once there's compassion, automatically, it's a kind of that. They overlap, you can't mm. see So they're not completely
0: distinct. No, that's quite right. But the reason I'm advocating compassion, maybe as a first step, is because it is sometimes, for many people, a little easier. And try to uh, think, oh, I've got to love that person, but in reality I can't stand them. You know, it is a very, it's it's, your miles apart. But when you think of all the dukkha that oneself has, and then all the dukkha that everybody else has, the compassion that arises makes it a little easier, and then the loving kindness follows suit. They are not apart, you're quite right. They are very much interwoven with each other. That's quite true.
1: My question is also about loving kindness and the the spiritual part. I was reading the the book uh, that you wrote on uh, going nowhere and being nobody, or the other way around. Mm -hmm. And it was chapter on loving kindness, particularly. And it seemed at the time that it made a tremendous sense. It just uh, seemed to resonate inside. And I wondered if, in my own case, if opening the heart, if you've be been opening the heart, yes, would be the, the, the end of the spiritual power. Uh, I mean, a totally open heart. And the the question then is can loving kindness be a one end in itself?
0: Loving kindness can be the, um, A total open heart can be the cause for complete liberation, yes. But there is a step to be taken from that which can come automatically or deliberately, either way. But loving-kindness can be the cause for complete freedom, yes. But loving-kindness in itself... um, In methodology no, there's another step.
1: I think I understand what you're Is it that the practicing of the loving kindness, the actual doing it, is quite different from any verbalization or any mental process yeah. one may have to work on in order to actually to see this thing in one's breath that is uh, injury
0: no I didn't mean that um, although all the, all what you're saying is quite so but I didn't mean that what I mean is um, that the loving kindness which purifies the heart completely and makes it pliable, expandable and um, to the um, unlimited is the uh, uh, step before letting go of self, and that letting go of self is the is the, the step that leads to complete freedom. So the um, uh, actually loving kindness together with the jhanas is the pathway which is called shitta Vimutti, liberation of the heart. And then there's the other one which is panya Vimutti, which is liberation. Of the mind, or I should say, no, that's a wrong translation. Sorry, liberation by wisdom, because the word chitta can be translated in either heart or mind. But in order to give the distinction, I will say one is the liberation of the heart, and the other one is liberation by wisdom. So the one who has liberation by wisdom will get all the insights, and possibly then, um, through the insights, be able to take the step towards calm and towards letting go of self, whereas the liberation through the heart goes along with the loving-kindness and the meditative absorption and lets go of self. At the apex, both meet, but these are the two pathways. Right, so at the beginning of the text
1: there, it says that jhana meditation uh, cuts down the five fingers, but it doesn't actually uproot them. So is it it in conjunction with loving-kindness that together they form a method of of removing
0: completely if the roots seem ultimately necessary? No. The jhanas and the loving-kindness will not uproot. They will cut down to the point where they are so puny and um, weak that we can uproot them. Only inside uproots. Right. <coughs> so, <yeah. coughs> These are the pathways, but they lead to the point of being so little, there's so little hindrance left that the insight um, of which has been gained on the way is then possible to actually manifest by letting go of self. Only inside uproots. one more hindrance, <laughs> and that's very often, as I said, called skeptical doubt. In this case here, I think it is translated as being uh, uncertainty. Um, I think the word uncertainty is actually preferable, because the word skeptical doubt is not so common. Um, and it is... Um, It is uh, compared by the Buddha to wandering around in the desert without any provisions, without any uh, road map, going around in circles and finally being overcome by bandits and killed. Now uncertainty uh, manifests in different ways. Very often it manifests in which med- meditation method should I follow? Uh, which teacher should I follow? Uh, how sh- how should I do it? What should I do? Uh, should I believe this or should I believe that? Um, these are very um, detrimental to practice because they take up energy and time and prevent one from actually doing it there's nothing to believe there's nothing to follow there's only to do the buddhas um, um instructions were always that one has to do it oneself there's nothing to believe so this um doubt is also about one's own ability the uh, the doubting that one can actually do it it all sounds so Um, grand and exalted, and can one actually do something like that? For that, we can be assured that every human mind that we call normal is able to change its level of consciousness. And we have already, all of us, experienced changes in level of consciousness downward, why shouldn't we be able to experience levels of consciousness upward? Change is change. So self-doubt is not appropriate at all, uh, and it's very, very um, detrimental to uh, one's practice, and the doubt of which way to go and what to do besets people very often and or very often results in they're making quite bad karma by putting that uncertainty and that doubt instead of seeing it within themselves, putting it out onto the person or the teaching that they're doubting, and by doing so, uh, denigrating it. And that's also a very dangerous thing to do because oneself has only opinions and not absolute truth in one's mind. So the... uh, All uncertainty vanishes, all doubt vanishes when one has their own, one's own experience. And the own experience only comes when one practices. And then there's nothing to worry about because one knows. Now again, the Buddha gave us the antidotes in daily life, the, um, against this skeptical doubt that, One learns more about the Dhamma and has wise and mature companions and, again, also noble friends and noble conversation. He compared the water pond with one that was filled with um, um, uh, growth, where there was so so uh, so much greenery growing in the water that one couldn't see one's likeness. This one disappears completely, only with the first um, step, the first experience of Nibbana, stream entry. However, it is um, very much reduced and almost completely negated when the concentration happens when the sustained application to the meditation subject becomes possible because one now sees that one has the ability to do it. And one also sees that there is something else to be done except the worldly things. So the um, with this one here, with this fifth uh, one, we um, the fifth uh, hindrance, has as its antidote the second sector of meditation when we become concentrated enough to have the sustaining of the initial sound of the gong, the sustained sound of the gong. The um with our with all five hindrances you can see that we have to work on them in our daily lives, but we have such an enormous assistance through the meditative process that that cannot even be put into words How what a difference that makes. A person who practices meditative absorptions regularly can find so much change in themselves without having to ask anybody about it that they become totally aware of being quite different from what they were. Not that we, and again, I must say, they do not mean liberation or enlightenment, but they mean the pathway which facilitates and enables the continuation of this practice. As far as content of mind, the force of the foundations of mindfulness These five are the first ones that we can become aware of if we can remember them. If we can't remember them by their names, we can at least remember whether we have a um, a negative or a positive content, and then we can distinguish very easily whether we're worried or restless or desirous or hateful. These are all skeptical, These things are easily seen. And as we see them, if we cannot go back to the meditation subject immediately, we may have to, as I said before, substitute with the positive aspect. So the uncertainty, we can substitute with something of the teaching that we actually are already convinced of. Anything at all which we have either heard or read that we are already convinced of. The conviction which then helps us to overcome this uncertainty. Now, that takes care of the five hindrances. Any questions on that subject? Everything totally clear. Yes. <laughs> the
1: antidote to agitation of the jhana.
0: That the uh, oh, I didn't say that, did I? Don't have to that. Oh, yeah, I, I think I, I, I actually I, I didn't. Uh, I think I didn't mention it. So in the in the jhana, it is the fourth one. It is the the happiness which arises. You see now, that's right, I didn't mention it. (laughs) The the happiness which arises in the, even in the first, already in the first uh, jhana, that prevents restlessness and worry. Because when there's happiness in the mind, restlessness and worry cannot arise at the same time. So the fourth factor of the jhanas Counteracts the four syndromes. Four and four stand next to each other. It's a, so in the, in in Pali, you were writing down Pali. That's sukha. Yeah. So the the five factors are: vitaka, Vichara, piti, sukha, ekagat. but mainly you should know them in English. <laughs> and in the first uh, absorption, the um, when it actually has happened, the most overriding factor is the delight, the sensation, the actual delightful sensation. The happiness which comes with it automatically is not as strongly um, experienced as the delightful sensation. The delightful sensation is its overriding factor. And the first two, the initial application, sustained application, apply to all meditative states, not just to the absorption. And ekagata, one-pointedness, applies to all concentrated states. that's the the five factors. They all work against the five in Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. a feeling of appreciation arise in yourself, appreciating your own efforts, appreciating everything good about yourself that you can think of. Content with yourself, loving towards yourself. Fill yourself with these feelings. Surround yourself with them. Now, extend this appreciation to the person nearest you in this room, appreciating his or her efforts, her presence, his presence. Fill that person with contentment which extends from your heart to that person's heart and surround him or her with your lovingness. extend your appreciation to everyone here, being glad about everyone's presence, appreciating everyone's efforts. Being glad about your companionship with everyone here. Fill each person with that appreciation, with your contentment surround each one with your lovingness. Think of those people who are near and dear to you. Appreciate their goodness. Their presence in your life. Fill them with your appreciation and your contentment. Embrace them with your love. Think of all your good friends. Appreciate their presence in your life. Their friendship. Fill them with your appreciation. Stand to them your joy and your contentment. Um the mission now. Think of all the people you know have met here and there. Have spoken to at one time or another. Think of as many of them as you can. Let them arise before your mind's eye. Appreciate if they're part of your life. That they're trying to make a good human life for themselves. Fill them with your appreciation. Fill them with your happiness and contentment. Surround them with your love. if there's anyone in your life whom you don't like very much reach out to that person too with your appreciation of that person's efforts and struggles fill him or her with joy and contentment Surround him or her with love Think of people everywhere appreciating their hardships, their difficulties, their dukkha and their efforts not to despair. Their efforts to live a good human life. It is appreciation of others reach out from your heart as far and wide as it will go. Filling beings near and far with joy and contentment and surrounding them with the gift of your love.